really just uh, now sitting there. All it takes is one little bit of turn to coolness in the air and uh, thinking back to my growing up years in St. Louis, Missouri, and especially the winters uh, there. We uh, only occasionally have snow uh, down here in Texas, but you could count on snow every year uh, in St. Louis. And I was thinking uh, of a common experience to those 16 years and older who had the opportunity to drive uh, in the snow. And uh, from time to time, I think everyone had this experience, anyone who's uh, been in snow for any length of time, of where your back wheels uh, get stuck in the snow uh, and they don't propel the car forward, uh, they just spin. And of course, that's the common phrase, spinning your wheels. A lot of effort and energy being expended, uh, but no movement forward. I thought about that uh, because I wondered if that's what some of you might be thinking as we have looked at this section of Hebrews uh, a lot and repeatedly. It made me wonder uh, if, if you were thinking, uh, uh, Pastor Dave, it kind of feels like we're spinning our wheels here. We're just in this same place over and over and over again, and uh, we're not really getting anywhere. Uh, if that is your feeling, I have great news for you. This is the last time that we will look at this section of the book of Hebrews, and starting next week, uh, we will begin with verse 23. Uh, and, and move on uh, past Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, and on to uh, Moses and the parting of the Red Sea uh, and the walls of Jericho and uh, Rahab and all sorts of other uh, Old Testament figures. Uh, so take one last uh, longing, loving look at our text this morning. It is Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 22. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able even to raise him back from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons, the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. We've been looking at the lives of some of the greats of the Old Testament uh, as this is a chapter that uh, defines faith, what it is, trusting in the unseen, confident uh, in that which is not visible, uh, and then these demonstrations or illustrations of what it means to live by faith. And so we saw the worshiping faith of Abel, the walking faith of Enoch, the witnessing faith of Noah, uh, the covenantal faith of, of Abraham. Uh, we looked at the lives uh, of, of Isaac uh, and Jacob and Joseph. And I used their mention here in Hebrews 11 uh, as an opportunity to jump off into an examination of their lives and see what their lives of faith in God looked like. However, technically speaking, those sermons were not strictly expository. That is, we haven't really dealt with the text. The text doesn't talk about the life of Isaac. It doesn't talk about the life of Jacob. It doesn't talk about the life of Joseph. It talks about the death of Jacob. It talks about the death of Isaac. It talks about the death of Joseph. And so uh, we see that starting in, in verses 20 and 21 and following. And as you look at the text, verses 12 through 16, I believe, almost form a parenthesis of sort. They, re they really seem to stray from the main thought that the uh, writer has been giving to us uh, just to point us in a different direction which is something of an underlying theme through the whole chapter, which he now brings to the surface and then moves on. Uh, verses uh, 12 through 16, after talking about the life of Abraham somewhat, in verse 13 says, these all died in faith. And so the writer is, you know, again, you know, remember the context. You know, these things aren't written in a vacuum or in a neutral setting. Uh, th this is a letter that's written primarily to professing Jewish Christians uh, who are both suffering persecution and sometimes even death because of their professed faith in Christ. And because of these pressures, they're also facing temptation to return to Old Testament Judaism and leave off from following Christ. And so the writer is giving the whole letter, really the whole letter, this, this chapter in particular, but the whole letter is given, motivated to comfort and encourage the Christians to whom he is writing. That, that's, that's the goal. That's the impetus, to comfort and encourage these brothers and sisters in Christ, probably fellow Hebrews, uh, fellow Jews. And what he is saying in so many words is, if we live, we live by faith in Christ. And if we die, 
we die by faith in Christ. And so what kind of a death is dying in a way that honors Christ or glorifies God? What is it to die in faith? Well, it actually is not that hard to describe. For us as Christians, dying in faith is dying, trusting in God, and trusting in his promises. This is the way the Old Testament saints lived and died. They lived trusting in God and trusting in his promises, and in particular, our focus today will be to see how they died trusting in God and, in particular, trusting in his promises. Verse 13, you see it in text, they died not having received the things promised. They died not having received the things promised. And so we should ask, first of all, what were the things promised that they did not receive? Well, this undoubtedly has reference to the covenantal promises God made to Abraham. God made certain promises in covenant to Abraham. Three in particular. He promised that Abraham's descendants would take possession of the land of Canaan, in which he was presently a minority foreigner and stranger. God promised someday this land will be the land of Abraham and his descendants. The second promise was the creation of a great nation. Abraham, your descendants are going to be as many as the stars in the sky. They're going to be as many as the grains of sand on the seashore. If you can number the name grains of sand on the seashore, that's how numerous your descendants will be. A promise which he made to Abraham, by the way, when he was childless. And then thirdly, God promised that the whole world would be blessed through one of Abraham's descendants. Because one of your descendants, through your seed, as Paul points out in Galatians, not seeds plural, but seeds singular, through one of your descendants, the whole world is going to be blessed. God made these promises, and yet Abraham died never seeing even a hint of the fulfillment of any one of those three. Abraham died and didn't see them. Isaac died and didn't see them. Jacob died and didn't see them. And Joseph died and didn't see them. God said that I promise all of these things will come to pass And they did not in the lifetime of the patriarchs. Nevertheless, what we're being directed to see is that they had unwavering faith in the credibility of God's promises. They figured, okay, if these things don't come to pass while I live, then it must surely be the case that they will come to pass after I die. But I know with infallible certainty that if God has promised it, delay does not mean God has reneged on his promise. It just means God's timing is different than our timing. And again, not to be unnecessarily derogatory, but just by way of of commentary, uh, you know, that which is broadly labeled 
as the charismatic movement uh, about which there are many things that are positive. There are some things that are positive. There's a couple of things that are positive. Uh, but really, as you listen to numerous television preachers and teachers, which I hope you don't, um, you know, what you find, I believe, to be the chief error is the belief that God intends to fulfill all of the promises that he has made to us as his people in this life. That's the error. The error is not believing the promises. They're all true. God has promised that we will be free from illness and disease and affliction. Hallelujah. I can't wait. It will happen. You will experience it if you are in Christ. But not in this life. I don't know of any place that promises that for every Christian everywhere without exception in this life. God has promised you will be freed from difficulty and anxiety and persecution and pain. You will be freed from sorrow and heartache and distress and being perplexed and, and confused. We will all experience that. God has promised it. It can't not happen. But not in this life. He hasn't promised that in, in this life. He's promised it. But it's in the life to come. And so we embrace all the same promises. The biggest difference is when God has intended to fulfill those. <laughs> and the Old Testament saints got it. They, they got it. They understood that it is not necessarily that God has promised these things in my lifetime. But it's absolutely necessarily the case that God has promised these things and they will come to pass and so that's how they lived and that's how they acted and that's how they prayed and that's how they blessed their descendants in the full assurance that these things would come to pass. And I think if uh, you'll look at the sermon title, I think it's uh, Plain Talk About Death. And so we do want to be plain about things concerning death, and especially because that's on the surface of the text. You know, they died not having received the promises. Isaac, and when he was dying. Jacob, when he was dying. Joseph, when he was dying. And so we're going to talk about that, and this might even be something of a parenthesis, but I think it's significant, important, and helpful for us as we form a perception, a Christian world life view of death. I couldn't possibly use the term world death view. That just sounds weird. <laughs> but what are we to think about that? And first, and almost foremost, would be this. Death is a perversion. Death is a perversion. 1 Corinthians 15.26, okay? 1 Corinthians 15.26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Bible calls death an enemy of human beings. It is not natural. It is not the way it has always been. It is contrary to God's original plan and design. God did not create human beings to die. He created human beings to live. In fact, he created human beings to live and have fellowship with him for all of eternity. Death is an aberration. We see this in the life and testimony of Jesus. When a 
close personal friend of Jesus dies, what does Jesus do? Jesus wept. His friend was dead. This is bad. This is heart-wrenching. This is heartbreaking. Jesus looks at death and he knows this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Even though he's going to bring him back to life in just a couple of minutes. Even though he knows that, he's still heartbroken over what sin has done to the human condition and brought death into the world. God made human beings to live forever and have fellowship with him. And that's the way it was, and that's the way it would have been, except the first human beings, Adam and Eve, decided to defy God and stop following his will and his ways. And the punishment for their defying their creator, with whom they were intended to have fellowship for all of eternity, for defying them, the punishment was death. By the way, God warned them of that. This was not new or unexpected in terms of consequences. Physical death and also spiritual death, separation from fellowship with God. And from that moment on, from the moment sin entered the world and with sin, death to the human race. From that moment on, God set into motion a plan to redeem and restore human beings to their original, sinless, pristine, perfect existence and fellowship with him. And that's why we call our salvation God's plan of redemption, because it is a plan that God is working out over time, which he has not yet finished, which will find its culmination when Christ returns and restores all things, including human beings, the way they were originally intended to be. The Old Testament believers got it. They looked beyond this life. They saw the promised land. This is in our text. This is in our text. They saw the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They saw it. They appreciated it. But their view didn't stop there. They looked beyond the promised land to the greater promised land. They looked beyond the temporary promised land to the eternal promised land. Of this, the earthly promised land was just a type and a shadow. And so that was where their faith was, was in the ultimate promises of God, to restore all things and make right everything that was wrong. So we want to look at the, the, the verses concerning Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph from our text uh, really somewhat briefly. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Isaac blessed his sons about things that were going to happen, the blessings of God and the promised land, even though there was not a hint, there, there, was, no evidence, there was no indication 
There was nothing that would tell you that these things were going to happen. But Isaac believed in the promises of God. And he was about to die trusting that God was faithful to bring to pass what he had promised. He had nothing else to go on but God and his word. That's all he had. But it was enough. Isaac believed. And for this, he is commended in faith's hall of fame. Verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. You know, if you think about it for a moment, as as Jacob or Israel is blessing the sons of Joseph, and this one's going to be this, and this is going to be that, and these things are going to happen, and they're going to divide up the land. That's the land of promise. And where are they? They're in Egypt. What's going on in Egypt? Nothing bad. Israel and his family have been given the choicest property of Egypt by the Pharaoh to live. They're happy. They're comfortable. They're provided for. And yet here's Jacob talking about this promised land away from from Egypt. You know, that might sound presumptuous if you think about it. That might sound audacious. How can he say that? But it's not given as presumption or audacity. It's given as confidence. This is Jacob's confidence in the promises of God that these things will come to pass. And then he also says, Jacob says, oh, by the way, when I die, don't bury me here in Egypt. No, take me to the land that has been promised to us by God. Bury me in the promised land. I mean, can't you imagine Joseph's sons as they hear that? Joseph and his brothers, I mean, as, as they hear this, thinking, well, no, this is our home. Why would we bury Jacob in a foreign land over there? And when Jacob says, bury me over there, he's giving witness and testimony to his descendants. Egypt is not our home. This isn't our home. That's our home. I don't care how settled you are. I don't care how comfortable you are. I don't care how blessed of God you are. This is not our home. And I want to be buried in home, the home God has promised over in Canaan. And so Jacob is commended for his faith in God. Verse 22, by faith Joseph at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. Wow. And gave directions concerning his bones. Same testimony of faith. And this is Joseph now. Now, he's been living as second in command, second in authority, only to Pharaoh. He's got it all. Wealth, riches, convenience, comfort, power, authority, provision, his family. He's got it all in Egypt. But that's not what he's thinking about. He's not thinking about the things he's got here and now. He's thinking about the better things that God has promised and directing the attention of his descendants to those those things. You know, I could imagine again uh, Joseph's brothers and and the, the, the children. It's like, why would we leave Egypt? 
We've got it great here. This is wonderful. This is terrific. <laughs> what on earth could ever prompt us to leave Egypt? You know, I don't know. Abject slavery might, but they didn't see that coming at all. And, and I could just imagine the possibility of them thinking, this is bad news. We're going to leave all this wealth. We're going to leave all this comfort and convenience and go over there to the place that we just, that we just came from. And, and I don't even know if Jesus had this in mind. I really don't, but I was thinking about this and the words of Jesus at one point where he says, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think there's all sorts of applications to that, but it made me wonder for the first time, I wonder if it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven because of so much they have to leave behind. Do, do you see that? You know, if your heart is invested in what you've got here, and you're going to die, you're going to be sad because you feel like you've got a lot to lose by dying. If you're poor, you can't wait. You cannot wait to be out of this horrible place and into the land of promise, I mean, flowing with milk and honey, not geographically and temporally, but eternally in the new heavens and, and the new earth. 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look to the things, uh, we, we are not to look to the things, this is Paul in, in Corinthians, we're not to look to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That sounds very much like the first part of Hebrews 11, as it turns out. This is faith, not in the things that are seen, but in the things that are unseen. The greater promised land, whose city and builder is God. I was fascinated to see, it says, Joseph made mention of the Exodus event. And, and let me just call to your attention that when that Exodus event is about to happen, when the Hebrew people become enslaved by the Egyptians, and it says they're groaning and crying out to God for mercy and help and rescue and deliverance because they're helpless, they're hopeless, they, they can't do anything in and of themselves to change their, their condition. It says God heard their groaning and he decided to act on it leading up to the Exodus event. Do you know why? Why did God listen to their groaning? And why did God decide to do something about it? Exodus 2.24. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's the promises of God that he made that causes him to jump into action and orchestrate the exodus because he had promised that this would come about and it's in relation to the covenant and the covenantal blessings passed on from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, so, and of course those are the three, the, the three primary uh, witnesses to the covenant. Uh, you remember when Jesus is talking about heaven and he's talking about the great banquet 
And what does he say? You'll sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you look into Judaism and Jewish prayers and, and, uh, and Jewish worship, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are central to Judaism and Jewish thought. Why? Because of these covenantal pro- promises that get passed down to them and then for generations, generations um, to come. Earlier in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer said this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, speaking then of Jesus, okay, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I'm not, I, sure, I sure have not been around many of these conversations because they could be awkward and uncomfortable among Christians especially and all us who profess faith. And, you know, but are you afraid to die? You know, and nobody's willing to come clean because kind of on some level or other, for the most of us, I think, yes. There, there, is some, there is some level of fear in there. You know, that's I believe, Lord, help thou mine unbelief <laughs> kind of thing, you know. But, but there must, that must be something on some level, on some spectrum of fear that's common to more than just a few, or it wouldn't show up in the Bible as something Jesus came to overcome. He came to help us overcome our fear of death. And I got to thinking about that. Why? What what are we afraid of? And I have the feeling that if you ask 10 people, you get 10 different answers. You know, it's like part of the fear might just be the fear of the unknown. Yeah, never died before. (laughs) So what is that like? How does that feel? Many of us, myself included, are not, we are not comfortable with new things, different things, things we haven't experienced. You know, that, there could be anxiety, you know, what, what will it feel like or, or will it hurt? It, it, you know, the, these are things that can create fear of death. And so what we would like or what would be helpful is, you know, is there anybody who has lived and died and then live to tell about it so that we can hear something. I mean, you know, isn't, isn't that pretty, pretty common? If you're going to have some surgery or other, what do you do? You seek out people who have had that surgery. Why? What was it like <laughs> to sort of help prepare me and equip me for, for, for what's to come? And so, you know, don't you wish that was true? Don't don't you wish you knew somebody who lived and died, came back to life <laughs> on the other side to be able to give us a comforting assurance that it's going to be okay? Of course we do. Obviously, I'm being somewhat you know, facetious. Our, our Lord, Jesus Christ, is the only one. He's lived, he died, and then he came back to 
to life, to give us assurance that it's going to be okay. This was our Bible reading earlier in John 14, but I'm going to read part of it again. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't you love how Jesus loves us? He anticipates we're going to be fearful. We're going to be anxious. This is troubling to us. So what does he say? Don't be troubled. He's talking about our death. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. He says, you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. I believe based on the scriptures, we could also say, Jesus is saying, I am the way to the promised land. I am the way to the new Jerusalem. I am the way to the city whose builder and architect is God. Nobody gets there except through me. Jesus presents himself as the one in whom is to be all of our faith and all of our trust and all of our hope and assures us that we will certainly see that heavenly city that the ancients longed for by faith because God promised it and he can never fail on his promise. I I think earlier as, as we came to worship, we were told, rightly so, you know, the most important thing we do as God's people is gather together in worship to give glory and honor and praise and thanks to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, who do we worship with? Who do we worship with on Sunday morning? Well, duh. You, you know, look around, Pastor. This is, this is who we worship with on, on, Sunday, on Sunday morning. Oh, my goodness me. So, so we, we live by faith and we worship by sight? This is what it says in Hebrews 12. You have come to Mount Zion, obviously not geographically, to the city of the living God. You have come this morning, September 10th, 2023, at Christ Presbyterian Church. You and I, we have come together here to the heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, who is the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You want to take attendance at a worship service today? You can't count the number. (laughs) It is too big to count. We are joining in, in monolithic worship 
with angels and saints, the spirits of righteous people made perfect. It was all I could do to hold it together, knowing this is coming, because you know some of those people who are there, worshiping by sight while we worship by faith. And so do I. <laughs> and we miss them. So we've got to move on from that <laughs> for, for now. But this is what it means to live by faith, this, this bigger picture of God and his people and their, their destination. I thought this morning of uh, Dr. Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, who uh, believed that uh, when we die, we go into a soul sleep, and then we'll awake at the resurrection. That's not my view. That's not the view of the Westminster Confession of Faith. <laughs> uh, I don't think it was... Paul's view when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, not to die is sleep. Uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with, with the Lord. But Luther said that uh, he believed that uh, after he died, the first words he would hear would be from the Lord Jesus Christ saying, Dr. Martin, Arise. Well, that's not my view, because I think it's more likely that when we die, the first words that we hear may be the very same words that Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross. Dave, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we thank you for taking into our account our weakness and our frailty. And we thank you for the comfort and the encouragement of the scriptures, enabling us by your help to not only live by faith, but also to know how to die in faith, trusting in you and all of your promises made certain in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.